0: Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. Hi, I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. Today my guest is Jane Tyne. Her novel Widowland, written under the name C.J. Carey, which she explains in the interview by the way, is an alternative history envisaging a Nazi Britain in the 1950s. It's a thriller but it's also a thought-provoking novel about women and widowhood and it has a really disturbing relevance for today. Jane is also the author of a 1930s mystery series featuring Clara Vine, and set in Nazi Germany. Widowland is a brilliant read, but I'll let Jane tell you more about that. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Jane. Lovely to have you here.
1: Oh, it's great to be here.
0: Good. Let's start with um, why you chose to write Widowland under the name C.J. Carey
1: um it, the reason i decided to write under a pseudonym was really quite simple in that i've written um about 10 books of historical fiction um, in which i've always as a former journalist striven to be deeply accurate to time and place and um in its and it's meant a lot to me particularly as the books i've written have been set in in and around wartime germany um right. which is a constant of time so i was always very very Keen to get historical detail completely as it was. And so when I took this very sideways step into writing um, an alternative history, it mm. I didn't think all my existing readership, such as they are, would would might find this a bit of a jolt. And so I thought, well, why don't I actually do it under a different name? and um carries my mother's maiden name, and as there's a very sort of as you can see sort of feminist thrust to this novel, um that made a lot of sense and c j is my own initials reversed so and um obviously, if you write under a pseudonym, you have that slight problem that. People who have liked your novels before don't know it's you, mm. so I'm publicising it also under my my own name. But um, there's a there's a liberation, a liberation about being a different person. Actually, it's a you can almost be a different um, novelistic personality.
0: So, just in the future, then, I mean, are you likely to keep the two personalities going—the two writer personalities?
1: I'm writing a sequel to Widowland at the moment. I'm nearly finished that, so um, yes, and that's another C.J. Carey novel. But I also want to keep keep Jane Thin going too. So I, it's it's nice. It's great to have two different persona personae, and um, I think yeah, definitely. I'm going to keep them for two different two different feels. There's an extraordinary thing when you've been a historical novelist to write alternative history. Yes. it's uh, the shackles come off you've always been very very wedded to what actually happened albeit that you've slightly fictionalized things but now you suddenly can let your imagination run wild and you can take um an alternate path in history and that has been what well, the revelation of of writing widowland you know what well, it's an it's an old what if what if um britain hadn't gone to war with germany um and what if an alliance had been agreed it's Mm. it's it's a hoary question but I specifically wanted to examine it from the point of view of women
0: yes I mean we will unpick that I hope but I want to start with just going back a little bit because you mentioned Clara Vine I'd like to talk about that you're obviously very interested in European history you're interested in this particular period of German history it's it's key to the, the Clara Vine stories and I'm just wondering First of all, why it's so fascinating, and then really, how much that that is the grounding for Widowland, anyway?
1: Yes, that's a that's a brilliant question. Um, so I got interested. Obviously, I had always been interested in World War II, and I think that for anyone around at the moment, it still, albeit two generations back, forms a big, big backdrop to our lives. And it was an event that changed. Europe the biggest event since the Reformation I think in the the dramatic change it it wreaked across Europe and I think it was one of those wars that like um, say the Trojan War you know we still talk about Troy we still talk about the classics and I think that World War II was a war like that Um, it wasn't you know we can't tidy it away because it's reverberations are seen everywhere across the Middle East you know and and the fallout from the Holocaust so World War II had always really interested me, but for me, it always had been a male story about the male personalities, the Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, Churchill, um, and the battles and the politics. And so my way into it originally was actually, I really wanted to look at the lives of women. And what startled me right at the beginning of um, Clara Vine, when I began to write the Clara Vine story, the as the jumping off point was discovering that Hitler had devised way, way back before um, he became Chancellor, had thought that one of the first things he would do when he gained power was to set up a Reich Fashion Bureau, because he was so interested in how women should dress and how appropriately and how germanically they should dress, and um, that the the, although this seems possibly trivial on the surface, it deeply isn't, because one of the things that Hitler wanted was to raise the German birth rate, which was at a very low level, and one, one of the problems, as he saw it in, in European fashion at that time, if you think of things like Coco Chanel, was that it elevated a um, narrow silhouette and kind of like being very, very slender, and that way fecundity doesn't lie. So albeit that fashion seems on the surface of it a triviality, actually it's tremendously important. And discovering that Hitler had thought these things through um, was just one illustration to me of how controlling he was of the lives of women. I mean, it still shocks people today to know that the SS ran bride schools Mm -hmm. to teach um, women how to... Be prepared to be married to a member of the SS. Um, my, my second Clarifying novel, The Winter Garden, is begins in a, with a murder in a bride school. These were established, and they didn't just teach um, how to kind of like make dresses and baby clothes and kind of um, cook herring. They taught how you taught your children essential matters of ideology. So, how you told fairy stories with a National Socialist spin, how you taught your children to pray to Hitler and Hitler very much said and Hitler said the most important person in my society is the mother because he saw that that was where the germ line of ideology would be so you had bride schools and mother schools and the faith and beauty school where where girls were taught um, to prepare themselves for mixing with an upper echelon of men all of these things that grip horror in our hearts um had been thought through. And it's, I think this is one of the lasting fascinations of um, Nazi Germany and the horrors of it is the level of detail.
0: Right. So tell us how the premise of Widowland kind of progresses that exploration of Nazi thinking.
1: So I, I brought, I'd, I'd written um, actually six clarifying stories. So the sixth isn't out yet um, before I wrote M- Widowland. And um So I brought a lot of that knowledge about how to control women and how to regiment women's lives. And um, I took a sidestep. And the sidestep is I thought, you know, if you have an alliance and you've got England as this separate or or Britain as this separate state, how about whoever becomes protector of this separate state using Britain as a tabula rasa to make a perfect society Mm. um, and... In my in my novel, Widowland, this this person, this protector, is Alfred Rosenberg, who's Hitler's guru, and the absolute cornerstone of this perfect society for him um, is a female caste system. Rosenberg did admire the caste system in India, but um, this is this speciality of this is it's a female caste system, and you have um, several different classes of women, and right at the bottom you have the widows, who were nicknamed the Frieders. Um, I took that nickname from the end of World War II in Germany when the civilian rations were allocated according to how valuable you were in the population. And right at the bottom was um, a group of women called Friedhoffrauen, which means cemetery women. And these were women over 50 with no children and no man and they were like useless. They were considered the least useful people in society. So in Widowland, these, these um these marginalized older women um, are sent to live in widowlands, which are basically decrepit, run-down areas, separate zones. And that was that was the beginning of it. It was actually a moment when I was leafing through ration books in in from the latter stages of World War II Germany. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, the level of detail, seeing how many calories each different sector mm-hmm. of the population was allocated and how, you know, older women got, got the fewest. I mean, obviously, I say that a- apart from Jews who um, by that stage in the war actually had been largely um, imprisoned and murdered. But um, this was Aryan women and um, they were right at the bottom of the pile.
0: Yeah, there's an awful lot to unpick there. I want to start with a, a slight aside, though. Do you think that because we were never occupied as Britain, that we kind of feel superior? Do you think that we think we wouldn't have fallen in line with the Nazi system and the way things went?
1: Well, this is so fascinating, and it's an, I'm not the only person that's been completely preoccupied by this question during this mass psychological experiment we've endured um, over 2020. Um, I think a lot of our national myth is based on the fact that we would never have um, submitted in the way that um, occupied countries in Europe and Germans themselves submitted. And that has fueled us for a long time. And um, one of the things that not just me, but lots of people have reflected during um, COVID is mm. actually easy it is to propagandize to a population and to frighten them and to get them to denounce people and um albeit that the war is a virus. Um and I think that so I think that our our idea that we're different um is not wholly justified but I do think there there are ways in which it is justified. Um I think sense of humor is tremendously important. Mm. Albeit in Widowland, one of the things that the, the the British do to make the controlling of their society under under the alliance more tolerable is they give everything nicknames, and that is a kind of British thing that we nickname make awful ideas more kind of bearable by nicknaming them. But the trouble is, you don't address the awful idea then; you just make it tolerable. And so, you know, all the different castes of women are given nicknames mm. and. Uh, uh, the German body that is is established in the Alliance Britain to um, make the birth rate, increase the birth rate, are called the Association for Screaming Kids. It's their nickname. Everybody calls them this. But, you yes. know, the fact is they still exist. So, albeit that I wrote Widowland before, I finished writing Widowland before COVID began, but I do think that we've learned some really interesting lessons since then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Why, why is it, I, I mean, I found myself, um, and I hope this, this is what you intended, I'm sure it is actually, that when you're reading the novel, you're um not so much thinking about it in a Nazi context, in the context of this old history, but more how it reflects on reality. And I'm just wondering, how did how did you achieve that? You know, this idea of getting the alt history to actually um point up the real history, if you like, or the, the reality, that the what society has become in a sense.
1: It's very i mean I think all, all historical novels are reflections anyhow of um contemporary concerns so all oh, there's mm. you know such things as a historical novel it's always a contemporary novel wherever it's set and I think that um widow lamb was very much i was thinking about um obviously about the way that 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 women's lives um are controlled and expectations of women and but also very much also about how populations really like safety and security. I mean, um, Theresa May's dictum about strong, stable society um, was very much running through my head, that people like order and safety. And um, as we've seen through the epidemic, you know, sometimes safety matters more to people than civil liberties. So it was very much, albeit that I finished it before COVID, but it was very much about that tension between, look, what are people prepared to accept? Um, how much denial of human individuality will you take, particularly if everybody else is agreeing with it too? At what point do you try to say no, and how effective will that be? One of the joys for me about creating Widowland and this these areas of marginalized older women mm-hmm. is that in Widowland, it When I was exploring Alfred Rosenberg's ideas, one of the most astonishing things that he did was that he set up an SS task force in occupied Europe to go through the countries and the libraries of occupied Europe and collect history. Because it was not enough just to burn books. We all have this idea of uh, Goebbels with the kind of fires and throwing books on the fires. That's what Nazis did. They wanted to rewrite books. They wanted to go further than just eradicating um, degenerate books. They wanted them all to reflect a national socialist view of history and where it had come to. And so you had teams or this particular SS team who rewrote history books, extraordinary enterprise. And so my kind of jump in thought was how about that happens to English literature come aboard you can't as as the um as Rose's lover who is also her employer says to her in the culture ministry look the problem is we could just toss all these English classics on the bonfire but you just can't do that because there's some that are too deeply ingrained in in popular consciousness you know Pride and Prejudice, Middlemarch, Jane Eyre you can't just expect people to forget them but what you can do is you can re-edit them so you can adjust the degenerate things that the the ideologies they espouse and so what Rose is specifically asked to do is to change the attitudes towards women in these great classics of English literature so he needs to make Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice a bit less intelligent um, and Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch slightly less independent and um, Jane Eyre more submissive to popular prevailing theories, uh, less feisty. And this is, this is her task, um, so that, you know, when they're put out into schools, you won't get these unruly, subordinate women with their empowerment and their, their pleas for individuality. So that's her task. But at the same time, um, so I thought I what I wanted to do was write a very tightly time-framed thriller set over two weeks, And it's set um, at coronation year, 1953, but the coronation of Edward and Wallace um, because the um, rest of the royal family have been dispensed with and Edward and Wallace have been brought back and they have waited all the time, 13 years till 1953 to be crowned because they're not prepared to be crowned without the leader being present in Westminster Abbey. Mm -hmm. Finally, 13 years later, he's prepared to come and the ceremony is about to take place. Um, but there are very worrying outbreaks of insurgency across the country. And these outbreaks take the form of um, samizdat graffiti that's been daubed on public buildings, on the British Museum, all sorts of other libraries around Britain. And they're lines from women's literature famous lines, rallying calls, feminist rallying calls. The first one that it's, it's shown us is um, from Mary Wollstonecraft. And this is fantastically embarrassing to the authorities because they, when the leader comes, one of the things he wants to do is make a tour of the libraries of Britain. We know that, although Hitler isn't mentioned in my novel, mm. um, Hitler was obsessed with the libraries and one of his big plans was to have a gigantic library in his hometown of Linz, the biggest library in the world. And so he wants to go around the Bodleian and the, and the British Museum with the library as then was and Cambridge and the Gladstone Library. And he's got a tour planned. And suddenly you get these embarrassing messages from Virginia Woolf and Jane Eyre. And so Rose is sent. The theory is that these are coming from these marginalized older women who live in these slum areas, because the one thing we all know about older women is they read, Mm -hmm. you know, who reads a lot? Women over 50, they read. And these are the most literate sectors of the whole of society. So everybody knows it's coming from them and the task is to find them. And Rose, whose existing job is correcting English literature, is sent into the lands to try and find who the culprits are.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a lovely um, appraisal of the story, by the way, or a lovely little praisey of it. Something that occurs to me, we're talking about literature now and censorship because that is at the heart of the novel. I'd say I grew up in an era, I just about was on the edge of the era where you could still see books and they'd have expurgated or boulderized in the text, you know. But it was, of course, it was a censorship, and censorship is not uncommon in British society. It wasn't just during the war that the BBC decided what was good for you to listen to and what wasn't good for you to listen to. But it was censorship in the sense that they wanted to control the sexuality or the the talk of sex and things like that in the novels. But what we're actually talking about here, and this is is incredibly disturbing, actually. When you talk about these classics like Middlemarch and you talk about re-editing them, it's meaning they want to re-edit. They, they want to gut it completely so that the meaning is re edited. It's a very scary mm. concept.
1: The fun thing about doing Middlemarch was um, that when she begins, it's a huge task. It's, you know, 700 pages long, and um, she thinks it's going to be beyond her. And when she begins, she thinks, oh, actually, this will be okay, because Dorothea Brooke is married to an older man. That's very appropriate, Cas- Casabon. And she her whole. Um, impetus is just to help him in his studies and to kind of assist him in his great works and that's completely correct and um so she thinks it's going to be all right you know all of this is completely compliant with alliance ideology and then of course dorothea has her awakening and because Middlemarch is to my mind the greatest novel in the english language um she, too, has her awakening. In other words, you can't read the great classics of literature without yourself being awakened. And um, her own awakening coincides with meeting these widows who are um, beyond the pale. You know, they are, um, they're uncorrectable. And so she, it's about personal growth and also, you know, but also, I I hope, a very fast-packed assassination thriller. Um uh, I mean, it was really important to me to keep the time scale very tight. You know that it end with an attempted assassination. And I was thinking of kind of things like the Day of the Jackal. I wanted you to think all the way through the book, will will this succeed? But censorship, going back to what you were saying about censorship, of course, is always with us. And it's with us, Charles Lamb, Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Endless, you know, Victorian bowdlerization and bowdler right through to um, very much today because now we have the woke revolution. You know, we're having to watch what we write and what we say and and it becomes self-censorship now. So um, it's it's as topical as ever, if not more topical, the power of the written word and the danger of writing the wrong words.
0: Do you think self-censorship is the only sort of appropriate censorship then? Or do you think we have a need for a level?
1: I think self-censorship is the most effective form mm-hmm. of censorship of course. So the way that you actually achieve your ideals is to make people control themselves. I mean, um, it's, um, that was obvious to Goebbels in the war, and it's obvious to the behavioural um, psychology unit in number 10 today, in that it's much, much more effective to make people check themselves. Um, in writing the sequel to Widowland, I've been very, very interested in the activities of the behavioural unit and how we are. There's a, there's a degree of chaos. Everybody says, I don't know what the regulations actually are. You know, Are mm. we allowed to move 15 kilometres from our house? Are we allowed to have six people in? Do they have to be related to each other? Um, people are not certain, and that's deliberate, because it's much, much more effective to have people uncertain to have a capriciousness about rules, because that way people will not overstep the mark. That way people will go, well, I think that's not allowed. And there you've got self-censorship. I think um, that, you know, just as with learning to love Big Brother, the idea is to take a rule externally and place it inside someone's mind. And um, that's that's the, the genius of all successful totalitarian regimes. I mean, Stalin himself said, um, uh, ideas are more powerful than guns and I don't allow my citizens to have guns. So why would I allow them to have ideas? You know, this idea that you close down the way that people think, um, get them to stop thinking. That's very much a preoccupation of the novel I'm writing now. It's it's how you actually stop people thinking for themselves um because it's what's certainly not new to me but i i think it's the most concerning thing that we face at the moment
0: yeah it's it's interesting because i think there's there's a couple of things that feed into that from the personal point of view one is if the government puts it back on you you become responsible so it's your failing when it goes wrong and we're kind of in a sense we're all being blamed for what's happened with covid in a sense the other thing is there's this incredible thing in human beings to actually have a very hopeful outlook. So you get a total disaster, like a hundred and what, 30,000, 40,000 people dying of COVID and the vaccine program is successful. And everybody all of a sudden go, "Oh, well, what, fine. Vaccines work. Now we're happy again. You know, the government did a good job, complete nonsense. So,
1: hit, politics is uh, absolutely a history of um, playing around with human psychologies and 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 and. The human desire for everything to get better, um, but also for things just to be kind of peaceful and quiet. Um, that very much that um, thing that you get at the beginning of Nazi Germany, where it, the famous saying, you know, when they came for the social democrats, I was not a social democrat. Um, you know, when they came for the Jews, I was not a social. I was not a Jew, so it, um, I did nothing. But who will be there when it comes for me? The idea that it frankly you don't really you've just got to kind of cultivate your own garden but it doesn't really matter what happens else further in society um uh, i think is is very powerful what's been fun about writing this novel is to is, is to be able to try and look at these ideas but also i hope to to write a thriller you know a, a thriller with yeah with guns and a love story um because nobody just wants, you know, turgid ideas. You know, people actually want just escape and entertainment.
0: Yeah, no, that's the thing about wearing research lightly, isn't it? But I also think you can't write a modern thriller now. Well, personally, I'm not interested in just being entertained. If all you're doing is entertaining me, then I'm going to get bored pretty quickly with the idea of a story that just does that. And it's the ideas behind it that matter. I mean, it goes to the very heart of um, why is reading important? you know, why is reading important to society? I think it's a very important question, and it's something that does come up when you realise how manipulated um, art can be, you know, and you realise how easy it is to get people to fall in with a way of thinking.
1: Very, very central thought at the whole of this novel is why is reading important. And Mm. um, I did reflect on what happened in Nazi Germany when uh, they took over Poland. Himmler um, set out some decrees as to how much people should be educated. Um and he very much wanted to reduce um literacy and vocabulary in um young poles because they would ultimately be a slave state. And so and he also did make um I mean incredibly this this should be somebody's vocabulary at this age. Why is reading important? Well, the answer to why reading is important is is that it it embodies empathy because uh, you cannot Mm -hmm. read without also making an empathetic act and seeing things from somebody else's point of view. And that is at the very heart of, um, you know, any any positive creed, like Christianity, you know, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Um, And reading does this. It's impossible to read really without this. And... um, reducing reading standardizing texts trying to make everybody read the same thing is one way of controlling reading um in *Widow*, there's a, uh, actually the opening scene is one of the things that happened in 1953 everybody remembers in 1953 this is when they first saw their television my mother was always telling me about this right. you know set in to see the coronation so into rose's office a television set is produced we're all going to be able to watch the coronation um and the um all the alliance officers are saying, actually, the thing about reading is once people start watching television, reading's just going to wither away. We won't need reading anymore. But they see the danger of reading um, and they see the danger of unfettered reading, reading the wrong stuff um, or reading too much. And um, so, this is all about reading and the importance of reading, but also how hard it is to to read um rose reflects on the fact that even you know she's finding it very hard to read victorian literature because you have to really focus um mm-hmm. nowadays, you know with with obviously competing media reading has become a tremendously difficult thing to do because I'm, I'm quite convinced, well, not just mine, but certainly my children's brains have been rewired to shorten the attention spans. And um, so the attention required to focus, deep, concentrated focus, is significantly harder to summon. Um, so in one way, reading um, is imperiled. You know, we don't want it to be imperiled, and we have to work our ways around that. No,
0: right, yeah.
1: Uh, but reading is such an important and potent weapon
0: no, I agree entirely i I think I, I de- definitely learn an awful lot from reading. You still do every time you pick up a book and it does come out of course that's the that is the point of the novel because one of the things Rose struggles with in a way is when she's faced with these things it's like alien you know when she hears about Mary Wollstonecraft it's it's an alien thought because of course it's not part of the thought structure that they're trying to build so it it becomes incredibly different and and if we get to the stage where people read less, and so when they read things like that, they become more, I don't know, alien to the way you think. That, that's quite a terrifying thought, really.
1: Very terrifying. And that's why totalitarian societies like uniform thought structures and why we must really watch the um, growth of censorship in our society, where everybody has to think the same and people get cancelled if they say something that isn't correct or in in alignment with the correct ideology because if you have a world in which there is just one uniform thought structure and you lose the tools to look at other thought structures then the society you've created is well obviously I think hellish but also um fragile you get a society career ultimately where you're not you literally aren't allowed to think anything different I mean we you know ultimately Orwellian. but it's so important to keep free speech and keep, keep the ability to be offended and um you know not to police ourselves um and I think that's a that's a real danger now you know yes to try and see other ways of thinking
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, fake news also adds to this problem. It seems incredible when you look at um, certain situations in America, you know, and you see when views you'd consider to be absolutely wacky and um, huge swathes of people just somehow accept them.
1: So there's, there's no
0: kind of thought process or there's no there's no filter.
1: Absolutely. And also stunning. Um, if you ever go like to the to the Bible Belt, um, you discover people who see the world so differently from Mm. you, Um, you know, whose nostrums are so radically different. And I think it is crucial to expose yourself to to all these different ways of thinking. But the danger is if you go into a very closed society, and actually part of the Bible Belt is a closed society, Mm -hmm. you know, that there's no different ways of thinking there. It's an endless quest, really. I I always think it's better to expose yourself to the way that other people think, whether in religion or in morals or in ethics. Otherwise, where are we?
0: No, I totally agree. I think when you read a book, I mean, you don't have to agree with it. What you have to do is engage with it. If you engage with it, you can learn something. But You can't in any other context. We've been being warned about this for decades. You know, the, the, the only thing is that um, you're still breaking new ground in the sense that there's not really much of a feminist structure to that kind of dystopian um, novel. You know, so you've got George Orwell and you've got Robert Harris, Margaret Atwood. We are so good at actually expunging women. You know, you take the field of art. You know, we don't want to know about Gentileski, and we don't want to know about Pauline Botti in this country. And there are so many examples. I heard one the other day, actually, which we give Edward Jenner the credit for the smallpox vaccine. And yet there was a woman who actually did this 30 years before Edward Jenner did. And nobody had the first idea because nobody's interested. A male scientist come up with the idea.
1: True, and we're kind of um, you know, that a lot of corrective efforts amount. I mean, I think we now are on a kind of curve in which we are kind of trying to um see the role of women in history. Wh- women have been overlooked for every single possible opportunity. Um, and I suppose what I I I did want to put women back into um into third <laughs> into the Third Reich studies, you know. I right. mean it really one of the amazing things about writing the Clara Vine stories was the extreme paucity of um, documentary information about the lives of women. Um, Mm. Having been sort of like initially sparked by the discovery of the Reich Fashion Bureau and um, the story of Magda Goebbels, which I thought was very, very interesting, I looked around for the books on the subject. There's like three, you know. I mean, it it was back when I started writing Vine, which was 2010, a niche, a very, very, very niche field. Um, and so I had to go to magazines and letters. I mean, luckily, uh, Magda Goebbels, who was my first subject of my first um of, of Black Roses, which was mm-hmm. the first novel, did write a lot of letters to her sister-in-law. So you really got that feeling of what um what it was like for her. She was a really interesting character, actually, because she upended my views of what um what high ranking Nazis were like because she had been brought up with a Jewish father-in-law, sorry, stepfather. And, um, she had grown up, got a Jewish boyfriend, learnt Hebrew, um, and, you know, planned a future. And this boyfriend had gone off called Victor Alossarov, had gone off to found a um, a state of Israel, you know, gone off to Mm -hmm. Palestine as it then was. And, um, She stayed behind and she then met Goebbels and, um, you know, the rest is history. But actually the rest isn't history because the bit of history that you don't often hear about is that she married Goebbels in 1931. 1933, Viktor al came back from Palestine Mm -hmm. and um, he walked down a street in Berlin and looked in the bookshop window and there was a great big photograph, a wedding photograph, and he looked at this wedding photograph and there was Goebbels, the groom, and Hitler, the best man, and the, the bride was Magda, a former girlfriend who had gone from a Hebrew-speaking, practically communist um, supporter of the State of Israel to being the wife of the arch-persecutor of the Jews. So this extraordinary, um, you know, 180-degree turn, which I thought, gosh, that's amazing, but actually was a story of what the fulcrum of politics in, in Europe at that time was, that people, you know, communist, fascist, you know, and people switched allegiances. And so I was really interested in her. And what we know about that particular story was that Victor Alasov, after overcoming his initial shock, and as he wrote, he fainted, almost fainted, staggered to in the street on this site. And... Um, all that we know is that subsequently he got in touch with Magda Goebbels, but we don't know what right. happened. I, this was the genesis of Clarifying because I thought, how fascinating if you could create a go-between, a fictional go-between who liaised between Magda Goebbels and her Jewish ex-boyfriend. Yes, and, right so, right. Um, and so it was. And
0: You know what? One of the chilling things, when you mentioned um, Magda there, I think it's one of the things that gave me the most shock in the novel was the fact that the children were at the wedding, and knowing what really happened, that makes it a rather sort of spooky thing. I'm just wondering, because yeah. I, mean, I suppose here you had to create a whole world, didn't you, really? Or you had to the difference in the research here is you, you're obviously still researching the same history, but as you're researching it, you're then changing it, you're adapting it. And of course, everything in the novel is um, it's not just the story in the novel. It, there has to be a whole background why we're not at war with Russia, you know, why the Americans are actually keeping out of it and so on. You must have had to create a whole world, in fact, in order to, to it, yeah.
1: The world building was really the, the whole sort of intellectual sweat of the novel, really. That's the hard thing because you've got, um, with alternative history, you've got how it was, so you can extrapolate from how it was. So absolutely, the um, you know, the, Go- the Goebbels girls, the five mm. Goebbels girls, grown up and they've they become a bit like the Mitford girls, you know, they're kind of everybody yeah. knows about them. Um and Goebbels is on his third marriage. Um that's all fun actually. I mean that the real pleasure of of alternative history is the fun you can have um with just shifting things slightly. Um, and so that the reader gets the jolt of recognition, thinking, mm-hmm. "Oh God, I know what really happened," you know. Um, and yet they, they've seen this sort of sliding doors. So, I mean, that, that's the real pleasure of it. And um, but with so many other instances in the book, I wanted you to. So um, Rudolf Hess has now got an estate in Scotland. Yes, right, yeah. He loves <laughs> flying his. It's, it's playing there single-handedly and everybody thinks, oh, God, what if you crash? You know, he's never going to crash. You know? <laughs> so I just love that because it's comedic effect- effectively and I want people to get that jolt of recognition and then laugh because they know the, what really happened. Um, and that's why actually, well, I don't want to spoil the end. It's very significant, actually. So, um, yeah.
0: It is and it, it makes an awful lot of sense of the plot. You know, it, it's so consistent with the plot. Um, I'm thinking about something uh, Margaret Atwood said when asked about um, the invention of an alternative history or an an alternative future, you know, um, um, a basic point she made was that I didn't invent anything. You know, there's nothing that's nasty, evil or horrible in this novel that doesn't come from the real world. I assume it's pretty much the same for you.
1: Absolutely true. And actually, I think that consistently now I'm writing the second novel, and which is also dystopic, I think these things that I'm inventing for people exist in a significantly worse way. Um, at many places, you know, Saudi Arabia, anywhere around the world, you know. So this idea that we're shocked at the treatment, um fictional treatment of, of women, and you know, they're being disregarded and they haven't got the vote, and um, they're being judged, they're being judged on their kind of racial characteristics. Hey, this is reality, much, much worse reality. Um, and so actually the real difficulty that you face is, um, how unpleasant is it going to be? And, um, you know, I didn't really, I'm not the kind of novelist that wants to dwell on kind of, you know, people being, you know, chopped up and kind of punished and terrorized nah. and, things. and I think that, um, although I, I saw The Handmaid's Tale on television, um, and I don't really like, um, that kind of gratuitous, um, level of, of violence. And, um, so that's just not for me, you know, but, um, absolutely true that it is about what happens. And, um, this may be a fictional telling of it and a kind of, um, almost, um, a sort of mythic telling of it, but still it's just what happens. And, um, I hope I don't put off male readers. I don't want men ma- male reader. I mean you're you're a male reader. Yeah, I don't want male readers to be put off it, you know. And um I, you know, so I always have some, some positive male role models in it. Um because <laughs> Yeah. You know, I was gonna say, not, you know,
0: there's there's more than one way of looking at that. The first one is in a sense, um, I do see what you're saying, uh, but if male readers are put off. You might want to question how well they are thinking about the society they live in themselves anyway. You can be too respectful. I mean, we have. That's part of the problem, isn't it? The whole history of of, of the way society's grown up, if we take the Nazis, it follows on from demonizing Eve in the very first place, you know, and you wind up with this sort of, it it just has, it just hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of just assuming that men are superior to women we're, we're I, still only now actually at the stage where we're saying you know what that's not true and we really ought to talk about that
1: exactly but that's why it's important not just to write for women um I mean I've got two sons and I don't want to do you know write some sort of something preachy about you know men are awful which I don't think <laughs> I think no. medical cool, you know but um I, I so I don't I would be it would be great if men men read this novel too and actually a lot of men as I know from Clara Vine books start off with being quite interested in the Nazis and um, you know so there, that is a bit of a hook you know that men a lot of men are very interested in the Second World War and um, so I, I hope that they will kind of like enjoy this kind of alternative vista um, so it's not you know it I, See, I'm, I'm a feminist, goes without saying, but I, did, I, didn't want it be, I didn't want it to be a
0: preach. A no, I, yeah, do I appreciate I? that. I do appreciate that. Um, but at the same time, as I said, I don't think a book that isn't a social commentary really does serve any purpose other than entertainment, and I'm not looking for that when I start reading books, you know. So one of the things that um, uh, comes out in the book, um, the Nazis say a social hierarchy is the bedrock of a society. And a social hierarchy leads to racism and sexism and a class structure and so on. You know, so we have to start talking about more radical ways of of, um, dealing with that. And one of the ways of doing it, of course, is in fiction. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely true. I mean, I think that um, so you've got this very artificial situation in the novel in which um, England is or Britain is completely cut off from the rest of the world and Mm -hmm. you don't news or any very limited foreign news, nobody goes on holiday. Um, it's been extraordinary to me during COVID to see these these predictions coming true. Because mm-hmm. I was laughing, you know, Rose's sister says, you know, I who needs foreign holidays when you can go to Felixstowe? But actually, hey, now we're in that world, you know. Yeah, and that that's a, a very, very odd thing. And it's also a very odd thing to write a dystopia when a dystopia is unfolding all around you. That's yeah. a very odd um, situation to be in because normally dystopias, whether it be 1984 or whether it be um, Brave New World or, or We, the Russian, the Russian novel, tend to happen as a warning before the bad thing has happened, and they 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 sounded as warnings. Um, unusually dystopias aren't usually written while the dystopia is happening usually because the to- dystopia is happening is so depressing and kind of sapping that people want something mm-hmm. different they want something uplifting or kind of exciting and so as i say i would finished widowland before covid made its appearance on the in the world and it was very much written before we did close our borders and people stopped going on foreign holidays and, right. and You know, people started denouncing their neighbours for, you know, this, that and the other. It was before all that. And then that came to pass, um, which um, I do not say that in any gratifying sense, because it's all been hell, but um, it it interests me. But now I'm writing the sequel. Um, The difficulty is to what extent do you paint a picture that is even worse than what we've lived through. And um, what I'm trying to do with the sequel is to take, um, have both further ideas about that ordering of society that so um a government that orders society much much more closely and so that's Mm -hmm. um also I've got a lot of royalty in in book two which I think is actually obviously what we've all been bathing in in the last year so um it has been very interesting to see what will happen to Wallace um a few years down the line it's 1956,
0: second one. Is, 1956, right? So we're moving on a couple of years. Yeah, that will be interesting. The the novel Widowland, I mean, the very title says it. Actually, it is about widows, the Friedas, um, but it's it's also about the experience in the modern world. And uh, you were married to the novelist Philip Kerr, and Philip died in 2018. Is this an experience for you that helps you to deal with the grief?
1: This entire no- novel happened because. Um, Shortly after Phil died, I had lunch with an old friend, and the friend said, Look, I'm really sorry to hear about Phil. Um, we'd love to invite you to dinner. And I said, Oh, great, when? Mm. <laughs> and he said, the Trouble is, we only have couples to dinner. Um, and I was really, really taken aback. And um, I went home and I, d- I d- d- just thought, Oh, I'm living in Widowland now. And then as I walked mm. home, I thought, what if Widowland was a real place? And um, I literally went home and went up to my office and wrote down a bit of a synopsis because it came together in my mind with this this point about the um, Friedhof Frauen in Germany, you know, this idea that, you know, there was a useless sector of society and, mm-hmm. oh, you know the idea of metaphor becoming real so that so so in a way that that experience was the genesis of this novel absolutely and um yeah I mean it was I was I knew Philip for 30 years married for 27 years he mm-hmm. was um he wrote 40 books all told but an absolutely I think unparalleled kind of um fictional historian of Nazi Germany he was doing it yeah really way before anybody else was doing it, apart from maybe SSGB. So, I mean, he was a real leader in the field and he knew everything. And so one of the the things I so miss, um, so every every morning after coffee, we would sit down and talk through the books we were writing and like bounce ideas and talk about plot, but also like talk about Germany. And um, it was really, really helpful and useful. And one of the things I miss is that instinctively I, you know, I think, oh, what was Heydrich doing in 1940 in September? You know, he would have right. known that. He right. would have known it instantly. And then I knew the women's stuff. You know, I came in on it later, but I knew the women's stuff. And I remember saying to him, you've got to use Goebbels more because he'd not used Goebbels very much in his books. But Goebbels is, you know, because he had so many female and romantic entanglements, is obviously yes. a great subject for fiction. Um but, you know, it was a very, uh, it, his mind was this kind of store of knowledge that, um, you know, I I really miss so much. I mean, he's he was, you know, I bow to know, and I'm his number one fan, obviously, um, and he was, I think he was a great writer.
0: Yeah, it must have been a comfort mind that um, I'm sure that um, you'd received a lot of comfort from people who read Philip and who were fans, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, he meant he meant. I'm just a reader, but you know, it meant a lot to me. I, the Bernie Gunther series and, and his other novels, too. In fact,
1: oh, I'm so. so pleased. Well, I mean, yeah, he's got loads of fans around the world who really do keep in touch, and um, I really think that you know, Bernie has got a lot of life. I mean, you know, the Bernie TV adaptation is is still in development, and I think will happen and um, I hope that brings more readers to the books because actually it's the books that, that um, are the great thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and I hope that, you know, they will last longer because they, you know, he's a, it's a fascinating, he's a great writer, Phil. And it it was also a very good take um, on, yes, he described his take as the idea that you have somebody investigating smaller crimes against the backdrop of the biggest crime of the century and that the, the kind of like the extraordinariness of that and I remember going to the vansey house, the house of the Vansey conference with him because I was researching for a book called uh, The Words I Never Wrote which
0: mm-hmm.
1: is, came out last year but he was researching for another novel and um, he needed at one point this very beautiful villa was being used as an SS guest house and um, it was absolutely fascinating that they had an Interpol crime conference at this SS guest house during the war, during the war, amazing. So, um, you know, at the very place where the Holocaust was conceived, I mean, you just, so much of Nazi Germany you could not make up and this was it's a very chilling place made more chilling by its incredibly beautiful surroundings, but it's, it's the co- coincidences, the hypocrisies, the unbelievable um, nature of that particular society, but um, it provides a lot of food for thought.
0: Yes, it does. I mean, basically you're right. When, when it comes to, um, the freeder's because they're not no longer women of childbearing age they're simply useless as far as the nazis are concerned it's quite incredible the issue to address in real life is how we treat widows you know what we think of people who are now on their own afterwards and and we don't tend to care very much fortunately but there's another yeah. issue of course which is about how you feel about yourself because obviously you've, you've lost a long-term partnership but at the same time, you are then faced with understanding these, you know, how society might see you then.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, so it's been a revelation to me. Not that I didn't ever know it, but, you know, what yeah. has been a revelation is that um, society is made up of singles and couples and couples sometimes do emanate a bit of a force field of, you know, um, you're single now sort of mm. thing. And um, some people, when they become single, are very, very anxious to couple up again very fast because they fear they fear solitude and they fear this kind of almost social stigma. And yet what really disturbs me is that we're moving into a world which has been hugely accelerated by COVID where mm. um, we are an atomized society, where um, social hubs are significantly less you know even the workplace you know it's work from home you know don't go out you know don't. and so people there's increasing numbers of isolated individuals and um I do I think that is I don't think they've even begun to address that I think that's very damaging for mental health and um it's an absolutely enormous thing, which I don't think is being addressed by government at all because the no. people who in government are really, really busy. They're in kind of like, you know, they're married with huge gardens. So they don't see, they don't see what it must be like for people in kind of like little flats on their own or, or mm-hmm. whatever. But um, yeah, so that's straying away slightly from your original point. But um, actually writing about women over 50 who read a lot is not a bad demographic to write about if you're a novelist. <laughs> you know, kind of my target market, you know, but you know, and they are they are literate. I mean, so um, you know, one of the stipulations in Widowland is that uh fiction may not be discussed in groups of more than three, except yes, in a school right. setting, you know. So I'd love I did import, well, not not for that novel, but for the next novel, importing some of the kind of jargon that comes out from government about what you can and can't do and in groups of how many, because, you know, as you say, micro-control again. Um, I think that um, there are increasing numbers of women over 50 um, and and more and more as we get divorced, and obviously a lot of them became widows during the pandemic. um, Their situation should come to the fore. It is, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm I'm a lucky person because I've got... um, three children who effectively live with me so i'm living right, in a right. kind of commune so that's that's fun but um you know it's it, it can be very isolating widowhood and of course you you know the real bummer of it is that you know this is somebody you had most of your adult life with So a lot of stuff that you can't remember they knew and then now they're gone so that's that's a chunk of you gone you know it's your phantom yes, limb. yes of
0: course yes
1: so um that's a very interesting thing but. Um, you know, as for me personally, I'm very upbeat, cheerful person. So I don't think it's um, you know, so so it hasn't impacted like that. But um so but I want also wanted the widows in Widowland to be all have different takes on their husbands, as their ex-husbands, dead husbands. Um, some of them actually not kind of grieving and sort of, you know, some of them actually either liberated or they hated it, you know, so it's not you can't class everybody as the same.
0: I mean, for me, I think, in a sense, it, it's become bizarre. You know, I, I'd never used Zoom before this uh, pandemic set in.
1: Anybody who says that Zoom replaces real life is wrong, because um, I think biologically, we've got to remember we're we're social animals, we're herd animals, and um, the biology of us is that we respond and um, to different cues to, to physical cues and I think there's physical proximity cannot be replicated by um, technological proximity at all and there's things that we don't even think of that are happening to us biologically through social contact Mm. that don't happen through contact on a screen Um, I was just thinking the other day about um, you know the 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 effect on newborn babies of not being not being touched you know actually impact on the size of their brain and um the great problem with the Great Reset and the technological revolution is, I think, to denigrate actual social contact. And this is what I strongly believe we should be thinking about now. People need people. I can't say this too strongly. I think human beings need other human beings. And mm-hmm. any government thinking that we can all just do fine because we can get Deliveroo and, um, you mm-hmm. know, things to the door... Are wrong. I think there's not enough critical thinking around what the impact of um, technology is going to be on our society, whether it be that you can only get to vote if you've got ID, you've got photo ID, which will dif- disenfranchise a lot of people. Mm. Um, or whether it be there was a very chilling um, program on Panorama about China's use of um, facial recognition, which is not just you yeah, can pick right. up, can be proud, but actually um, that the AI can now read um, emotions um, by the diffusion of blood on the on the you know the level of frowning and things to work out and your emotional state just by a computer can tell whether you're nervous or whether you're frightened. Yeah and they use this in police interrogation cells. so you might be sitting there going, I didn't do it, but if you're emanating fear and anxiety, it's pointing towards the possibility of guilt. And so this I think unfortunately, we are lagging behind in the whole of fiction in being able to grasp the speed that um, technological change is impacting the things that we we take as important. And I can't, um, I think we're, we're caught in a bind because I can't think of any fiction writer that's actually getting there quick enough to say, look, this is what's happening, worry right. about it, because um, already we're being outstripped. Um, that's what I think, I, so you can, you can make comments in fiction about the atomisation of society and the overregulation and censorship, which is what I hope I've done. But um, if you don't let people know what's really happening and the real dangers, then people are not alive to it. It's a huge conundrum, um, but not one I'm kind of able to address right now.
0: No, but it's like anything else. If people start thinking about it, you can, you can come up with answers. But if we're not thinking about things, and that is one of the problems with society, isn't it? And that's what uh, any kind of totalitarian society or even one like Trump society, where you want to anesthetize people to their thinking. And mm-hmm. that, of course, goes back to the novel. And um, just on, as we have to finish up now. I'm afraid. Just tell us a little bit more, please, about the sequel to uh, Widowland
1: it 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 takes further what happens in Widowland and it's about the closer ordering of society but more specifically i wanted to look at what happens when the, the alliance has to interact with the real world it has to recast itself right. so um you get a situation in which people who've run um a horrific regime go actually that's all in the past now's the time to draw a line i had nothing to do with that you know very much been inspired by um the auschwitz trials of 1963 where they right. found that in germany just hadn't heard of auschwitz and were going why are we even trying to prosecute these people that is so over that that idea of amnesia shortly after a huge event is what i wanted to tap into
0: brilliant i should look forward to that it's been an absolute pleasure jane thank you very much for giving us your time
1: oh, thank you so much for letting me go on for quite so long thank you
0: Thank you for listening to Crime Time FM.